The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. This week on the podcast, I have two very extra special guests. Uh, this is really quite fascinating. Byron Scott is a former L.A. Laker. Uh, part of the Showtime Lakers, won three national championships as a player, uh, went to the finals several times as a coach. Charlie Norris is the former CEO of McKesson Water, as well as Deer Park Water, uh, who has a history of taking these uh, damaged or, or floundering companies and turning them around and selling them for a substantial uh, uptick from, from how we found them. This is really a f- story of a fascinating friendship that developed over time, starting in an Equinox gym in Los Angeles, where Scott used to work out after uh, his playing days. Um, this is really a fascinating tale of how these two gentlemen, who could not look more differently uh, if you were seeing them from across the room, and yet they turn out to be philosophically and temperamentally so similar, and a fast friendship develops uh, with a lot of exchange of ideas in terms of how sports and business have all these overlaps, uh, questions of leadership, questions of motivation, questions of threading your way through a variety of, of different challenges and how best to respond to them. And what ends up happening is a a lifelong friendship develops, and at a certain point, they kind of look at each other and say, hey, there's a book here. We really have to share what we've discovered. It's it's a lovely story. I found the two of them to be absolutely charming and delightful. My only regret is this interview is barely an hour. I could have chatted with them for another hour. They were, they were just a blast. So here are Charlie Norris and Byron Scott discussing corporate leadership in the modern age. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guests today are Byron Scott and Charlie Norris. Uh, Byron was a NBA player with the Showtime-era Los Angeles Lakers, where he won three national championships, playing alongside Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He went on to have a successful career as a coach, where he got two more championship rings, uh, coaching the New Jersey Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks. Is that right? Uh, New Orleans Hornets. New Orleans Hornets, that's right, who eventually became the Charlotte Hornets. Right. And... And his co-author is Charlie Norris, who is a successful businessman. He is the former CEO and president of McKesson Water. He helped take Deer Park Spring Water to a new level where it was subsequently sold off to, was it Dannon? To Clorox. Clorox. McKesson Water was sold off to Dannon. Both gentlemen co-authored a book called Slam Dunk Success, Leaning from Every Position on Life's Court. Gentlemen, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. (laughs) So uh, we were talking earlier and I said, you know, I'm really not a big fan of business books using sports as a metaphor. They're always cliched and blah, blah. 
But this was a really fun book. It's light and breezy, and it's filled with some really smart insights. Tell us how this came about. Wow. Um, well, I mean, to kind of get in it, I guess, real, real easily from the beginning, uh, Charlie and I met at Equinox in West Los Angeles nine years ago. And a mutual friend introduced us. Mm -hmm. uh, and after we met, a couple of weeks later, we started to do some cardio workouts together. And, uh, you know, from then on, we started lifting weights. And, and basically, we really just started to get to know each other. And workouts became very intensified. And next thing you know, we're on the mat one day after one of our uh, uh, unbelievable workouts. And we're both sitting there. And Charlie says, B, we should write a book. And at the time, Barry, we, you know, we really looked at it as something very lightheartedly mm -hmm. and maybe a little paperback book. And we thought we would have a bunch of pictures in there and we were going to call it how to work out when you're 50 years and older. So and I have to ask a question. You said your workouts became intensified. Yes, sir. How did that happen when the two of you guys are just, you know, neither of you are professional athletes any longer. Right. You're both in your <laughs> One 50s. of us never was. <laughs> well, that's right. You're both 50 plus, 50 and 55 and 65 along those those age range. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> how, why did the workouts become, or at the time you're 45 and 60, 55, why did the workouts become more intensified? Why were you driving each other to work harder? Well, Charlie came to me and said, B, I need to lose weight. And I said, all right, Charlie, we're going to start lifting weights and we're going to intensify the uh, uh, the cardio workout. And, you know, being an ex-athlete, I, I know how to work out mm -hmm. and I know how to work out hard. And having a partner like Charlie, my only problem at the time when we first got together was wondering if he could really keep up with me mm -hmm. and if if he could help me by pushing me as well. I'm wondering if I could keep up with Charlie. That's, <laughs> that's, that's my that's, level. That's a good question. That's yeah. a good question. Uh, what Byron didn't know is that I had run two marathons, and I and I am always goal oriented. So you're both competitive, to we're say very the least. Competitive. Very. And very. that did he push you? Did you have yeah, to work out harder? I, I mean, you know, the thing was that he pushed me to to be better and lift more weights and and do some things on the on the elliptical machine and the treadmill that I hadn't done before. So it, it was a great match because we were able to uh, really push each other. Uh, there's a wonderful story in the beginning of the book of how people just keep coming up to you and saying, what is this odd couple development? Uh, what was the general reaction to people for you two guys? Yeah, hanging? I, I, I want to uh, come back even a little further because uh, as we talked, I'm a Bostonian, mm -hmm. Byron being from Los Angeles. So you guys are natural enemies in the wild. <laughs> there you right? go. He didn't there tell me go. he was a Bostonian. No, right he like, left yeah, that out. Yeah, he uh, did. What a surprise. <laughs> but I was a Laker hater for, from when I was uh, in embryo. And uh, Wait, there then were... I have to ask, he's bragging on elbowing Danny Ainge in the chin <laughs> after that was Magic okay. That was okay. That was you were all, right with that. that. I was okay with that. But... Uh, I really, uh, I met Byron, but it wasn't love at first sight because honestly, I didn't know who Byron was. And I was observing him at, at the, the gym where we work out. It has a couple of floors and Byron would be down on the first floor. I'd be up on the second on one of the cardio machines and I'd watch him. And what really impressed me was he was serious about his workout but if people came up to him, he took time to, he didn't just brush them off. He took time to talk to them, but kept going because he wanted to stay on his workout without being rude about it. And when we first met and started to do things together, I was 
really impressed with the fact that he knew the names of the people picking up the towels in the gym, the people that were handing out food in the downstairs in in the in the dining area. He knew not only their names, but they're going to night school, if they had kids. He really cared about the frontline everyday people. So I what really attracted me to him was more the, the question of uh, his leadership style was one of getting to the hearts of people. It was it was obvious to me, which is mine. So back to your question, uh, every day, five to 10 people would come up and say, what do you two have in common? Why are you having so much fun? <laughs> B, you're going to kill that old man. Why, why, are you, why, are you, why are you working out together? But they never asked the second question, which is, you know, it was sort of an ironic question, and then they go off to whatever. Uh, but they never asked the second question, what do you really have in common? And uh, on this particular day that that Byron is alluding to when we were sweating away, there must have been 15 people who asked that question and wandered off. And I said, there really is a book here because the book is not only the workout, but this unlikely friendship and really, you can't judge a book by its cover, uh, that we do have a lot in common, but nobody takes the time to really try to understand that. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Byron Scott of the Lakers and Charlie Norris of McKesson discussing similarities between coaching a team and running a company. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guests today are Byron Scott of the NBA Championship Los Angeles Lakers and Charlie Norris, former CEO and president of McKesson Water and Deer Park Spring Water. We were discussing the similarities between coaching a team and running a business. What are the uh, not-so-obvious overlaps between these two endeavors, and and where do they differ? What was a great experience for me... uh when Byron got the Laker coaching job, we started working out whenever they were home. We started working out together uh, virtually every day at the Laker facility. And he included me in uh, film sessions with the players, coaches meetings, uh, the practices. And I really started to see how his leadership style and mine were aligned in, in many ways. And And one of the similarities is you win if your team wins. And uh, how you score in business is a little different than how you score in sport. In, in, our, in our world, you score if you gain market share from the competition. And market share is a huge indicator, both of how your, the consuming public views you, but also what you're doing better than the competition to be gaining share if that's not, you're not just buying it, you're gaining it and your profitability is going up with it. And that clearly is a team exercise on a corporate level. It's a total team exercise. And so back to an earlier question you asked about why it's important to get to be a people person and know what's going on with the people. Uh, a very high percentage of our frontline people, especially on the route, the route sales reps, they were former athletes. Really? Uh, yeah, they were, they were former athletes. A couple actually were prof- former professional athletes. And they understand that 
you have to get have the back of the people around you. And by that, if somebody is sick one day, uh, the others would take over and make sure that their customers were served. Uh, they would help each other, and sometimes they would move bottles from one truck to another. Uh, if one guy was already, uh, his truck was already empty and it was easier to have someone in the field, give them bottles rather than come back to the manufacturing facility. And we wanted to make sure at every level, people understood that we're in it as a team. And so things that I would do with Deer Park, for example, even the union employees we gave a stock to. We gave stock to everybody because if we were going to be successful, uh, then we wanted the whole team to be successful. Everybody ought to participate. Yeah. So, yeah. so then how do you incorporate, you're then coaching the Lakers. Right. How do you incorporate these you know, big business uh, principles to managing people? How does that apply to, you know, I think of professional athletes as, you know, high strung, highest <laughs> level uh, I, I, it's a terrible um, uh, way to, to conceptualize it, but these are people competing at the very highest level of physical achievement. It seems that would be a very different set of rules than let's go sell more widgets today, or am I completely wrong in that? No, I, I think the rules are pretty much the same. Like Charlie said, it's all about the teamwork. And when you have a team of five on that floor, and really it's a team of 12 or 15 because it's the whole right. team, and one of the things that Charlie taught me is that, you know, you have to put the people, uh, the frontline people at the top. You know, he has his upside down pyramid that we talk about mm -hmm. and the coaches at the bottom. You know, so that 12th and 11th and 10th and 9th and 8th guy is just as important as the number one, number two guy uh, on any team. Because at the end of the day, as a teammate, when I played the game of basketball, I didn't want to let my teammates down. So I had to make sure every night I came ready to play and do my part. And in turn, our guys all felt that way. And as a team also, you have to have – it has to be one common goal. You, you can't have all these guys have different goals because it's mm -hmm. not going to work. And our whole goal and whole mindset was always win championships. Uh, we, we didn't care about the individual achievements because we knew if we won as a team that everybody would win and everybody right. would, would, would prosper from that. You know, so it was very important for us to understand that the name on the front of the jersey is much more important than the name on the back of the jersey. And that's how we kind of – you know, looked at it as we do in business when, you know, when I'm dealing with Charlie and we're talking business and I'm really just, you know, grabbing his coattail and listening to every word he has to say when I'm in these board meetings and in and, and these bank meetings, I, I get a kick out of that because it's, it's so much like basketball. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has to be on the same page in order for it to be you successful. You know, he's not, he's not on my coattail. In fact, what I found that is amazing to me uh, if I ask another consumer packaged goods guy, what do you think about this problem or this issue with or that personnel issue that we might have? I'll get an answer that's probably pretty close to what m my way of thinking is because we grew up with, with uh, t studying the right. same courses. When I ask Byron that question, I'll get a very different answer. And oftentimes that answer will turn on the light bulb, boy, I never thought about it that way. I've got to modify what I'm doing and incorporate what he's suggesting. You have to take these elite athletes and mm -hmm. get them to perform really at the very highest level. When you're working with staff, employees, you want them to do their best 
but it's a very different set of parameters. So, so where are the differences? What do you pick up from Byron that you can't get from someone else in a packaged goods business? I can't, I can't say that uh, make a generalization around that, but all I can tell you is I've on, on numerous occasions said, I'm having a problem with this person or this issue. And he'll say, you know, this is how I've done it in the past. And sometimes there's something that will click and I'll say, you know, I'm going to try to use that to see if I can uh, motivate the person better than I've been motivating him or her in the past. Uh, and and that's same, happened. And yeah, it's in happened the same a number term, of I've done the same thing with Charlie where I've asked him a question that I know I can go to one of my coaches and ask, but I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a basketball answer. Mm-hmm. And you know, he he sees the game. You know, he he's been in the meetings. He sees all the things that we're doing. But I'm gonna get a very objective answer from him that's totally different than what I would probably get from my coaches. And the answer I would get from them is something I probably expect to get. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So Charlie puts it in a different form where again, like he says, it kind of clicks with me and it resonates. And I can go to that player and put it in a different form where it makes sense. And we've used each other on numbers, number of occasions that way. And uh, I remember the last time we did that, you know, I was so giddy. I was like, Charlie, that is fantastic. I'm going to go use this. And it it worked extremely well with the, the young man I was talking to. So, you know, it, it's great that we can bounce things off of each other because we're both getting a different perspective. I'm not giving him the old um, the old company, you know, mm-hmm. you know, answer. And he's not giving me the old coach's answer. And I think that's what makes it really work. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Byron Scott of the Lakers and Charlie Norris of McKesson discussing what it's like playing the game at the highest level. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guests today are Byron Scott, formerly of the Los Angeles Lakers, and Charles Norris. He is currently chairman of Fresh Pet. Previously, he was CEO of McKesson Water. Let's talk a little bit about playing the game at the highest levels, be it sports or or business. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan of of hoops, and I read not too long ago that Oscar Robertson has been pretty rough on on some current players, mm-hmm. saying saying that they're soft today. That it's not like the old days where you had to man up and get hurt and play through the pain or what have you. Uh, what what's your view on this? Has the game changed? Are these modern players really soft? Yes. <laughs> really? Oscar is not pulling any punches and he's no, right. No, never does. And no, he never does. But, you know, a lot of us old school players feel that way, uh, that the game has gotten a lot, a lot softer. Uh, you know, the freedom of movement, you know, rule is totally different than it was back in the day. You know, every time you got up and down the court, you got hit. You know, right. back in the 80s and the 70s and the 90s, uh, there was no freedom of movement. If you it wasn't ran just across, the Detroit Pistons. It no, was everybody. No, it was everybody. I mean, everybody played by the same rules. Detroit just took it to the, you know, to the <laughs> limit. You know what I mean? So, and then some. And maybe sometimes a little over. But but that was a part of the game. You, you knew that you were going to get hit when you went to the basket and you, you accepted it. You get up, you make your free throws, and you go down the court. So the game has gotten a lot softer. And I think for a lot of the reasons why is because the NBA wanted to open up the game a lot more. They wanted to make it much more offensively friendly mm-hmm. uh, because they know the more you score, the more fans are in the are, are in the seats, and the more fans are watching uh, watching the television. So the viewer the viewership becomes much more higher. So uh, I understand it. 
Um, and, and obviously, the game right now is in a very good place. Uh, and I do like the way the game is being played. I, I, you know, it's totally different than when I played when it was inside out. Now it's outside in. Right. And the, you couldn't have had guys, a Curry and a Golden State doing what they're doing back in the 80s and 90s. Well, they could have. I, I still think I'm not going to take anything from those guys because Curry is a great basketball Fantastic. player. I'm a big Phenomenal fan of Curry. shooter. Uh, but he but would have been, been hit constantly. He would have been beat up a lot. You know, back in the day, so mm-hmm. it's it's a lot more uh, lenient towards guys that are that are smaller, and it's really brought the smaller guy back into play, because if you can shoot it from deep and if you can handle the ball, right. then there's a place in the NBA for you. So I, I grew up in the era of of Magic and Bird and Michael Jordan and yeah, my era, uh, your era, and it <laughs> right. and it was I thought it was a you know a, a long suffering Knicks fan and the the. Uh, Starks, Oakley, uh, era, Patrick Ewing. Of course, it it was it was frustrating always getting to Chicago and you know more or less one finger roll away from making it into the Mm. finals. But I thought that was a fun game and it was a physical game. As much as it's fun to watch on TV, it's totally different than it used to be. It's it's yeah, it's faster. So have they ruined basketball or is it? Have they commercialized basketball? Well, I think they've commercialized it a lot more. There's no doubt about that. Ruined it is is a is a very harsh word to use in the NBA. I think the game is still flourishing right now. Uh, you know, the game probably right now is more popular than it's ever been. You know, mm-hmm. especially with globally. Yeah, especially with the fact that you know, from a social media standpoint, you can go globally. And I and I'm not. I don't think I would be crazy to say that there's going to be an NBA overseas somewhere mm-hmm. in the near future. Um, you know, so the game is prosperous. I mean, the game is doing extremely well. Uh, it's a great game to watch when you got teams like Golden State and San Antonio, uh, Cleveland, the teams that play what I call the right way. You know, mm-hmm. they, they play they play to win, and they're playing for individual glory. They play to win championships, and I think that's the beauty of basketball. So, if Charlie, if Byron brings you to the NBA headquarters and they say – Listen, we're having some concerns about the future of the game. What what would you recommend they do to uh, take it to the next level from a from a corporate perspective? Uh, Barry, that's that's a really hard question because I, I'm waiting to hear this answer. Just yeah. fix sports. I'm just asking you to yeah, fix, fix sports. It, so I'm just not fix asking you anything challenging. Just take a billion dollar industry and make it better. Uh, still, that, that's a hard question when it comes comes to basketball. Or what about their own internal management? What what do you think they do well, and what do you think they don't do well? I could tell you. I, am I allowed to say this? I've seen the four hundred one k that the NBA has for their own players, and it's terrible for their own employees, not the the players. But if you're an employee of the National Basketball Association. Your four hundred one k stinks. I'm, I was shocked at that, which made me wonder what else might they be doing yeah, poorly. Well, well uh, I've had this conversation on uh, innumerable times with Byron and other friends of mine who had played in the NBA, and it it's shocking to me the percentage of, of players five years after they've retired bankrupt. who, who are yeah. totally bankrupt yeah. to uh, have no career direction. And clearly it's it's getting worse and worse because back in the day you had to be three years out of college. Right. Today you're one year and you can and many many of the players go overseas for that year and don't do college at all. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Byron Scott and Charles Norris, authors of Slam Dunk Success, 
leaning from every position on life's court, discussing the changing world of business. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guests today are Byron Scott of the L.A. Lakers and Charlie Norris, currently chairman of Fresh Pet, former CEO of McKesson Water. Let's talk a little bit about the world of business today. And and these are some questions that I pulled pretty much right from the book. You discuss the importance of being transparent and honest in every one of your interactions with clients, with employees. How important is that sort of transparency and honesty to, to business today? I think it's hugely important. Uh, my, my view is there's no dumb person. And everybody, if, if you're the leader of an organization, and especially if you're a leader who's, who gets out with the uh, employees as much as I did, and I'll come back to that in a second, uh, the employees are watching you. And they're watching what you say and, and how you behave and what, what you do. And if you don't walk the talk, mm-hmm. uh, they'll know it. And, and they won't uh, respond as favorably. And in fact, they won't respond favorably at all if they think that you're, you're up there and you're just t- raking in your, your salary and your bonus and you don't care what's happening to the business or happening to them in their own lives. So when I got to McKesson Water Products, the... Um, there was one reserved parking space. I read the, that in the book. I thought that was There was, was fascinating. one reserved parking space in the whole company, and it was mine. And the first thing I did in my first day on the job was eliminate that one reserved parking space. Then, uh, did people I, recognize that and w- understand why you did that right away? It, we had fifty odd locations, and. A consultant said we were like a uh, an African village in terms of bongo drums telling different in, systems, in, 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 no different single system. communication. No, yeah, and and I'd I'd say two days later, everybody in those fifty locations had heard some uh, some <laughs> story around that some around that act. You said early in the book when you came to McKesson, if you didn't do something to restructure comp- the company. All 2,500 people would lose their jobs when the company went bankrupt. So you had to let go 1,000 people. And Byron, you talk about what it's like being cut and what it's like to have to let uh, a player go. How do you go about making those, having those difficult conversations? What's the best approach for, for those sorts of things? Well, first of all, I was the new guy on the block, and there were several people internally who felt that they should have gotten the, the CEO role mm-hmm. who were already there. I had a water background, but East Coast, and I was coming to the West Coast. So I didn't... Were there East Coast, West Coast water battles, like East Coast, West Coast no, rap battles? No, it, not at all. Is it all that different, or is it... Uh, well, I could I'll imagine... tell you, no, this is, this is, a, this is an interesting story. Uh, on the East Coast, it was largely uh, office delivery. Mm-hmm. On the West Coast, over 50% of our sales were to homes, uh-huh. not just to offices. Uh, on the East Coast, it was 
large, at least uh, with with Deer Park, it was all Teamsters unions. Mm. On the West Coast, there was very there were pockets of union, largely non-union. And on the West Coast, I was um, I just shocked when I first got there that there were bulges in the pockets of our route sales reps. I'm saying, what are you what are you, what are in your pockets? Well, they all had massive amounts of keys, and I'd say that up to half of their accounts, the people had given them the keys to their homes. The house keys. House keys, if they weren't home, they could bring the bottle into the kitchen or wherever the water cooler was, take off an empty, put on a full, or put it inside the house. And to take this to the next level... That's crazy. uh, When we did research on how did... Uh, customers who had a relationship with the route rep, how did they view our company versus customers who didn't have a relationship and didn't see the route rep on, on a frequent basis when they were making deliveries? Well, if they saw the route rep, the water tasted better, the uh-huh. route truck mm-hmm. was cleaner, the water cooler, the water dispensed was warmer and colder, everything was better. The the quit rate amongst those customers who saw the route rep on a regular basis was dramatically lower than the the quit rate was of people who didn't see the route no rep. No substitute for pressing the flesh. None whatsoever. So back to this, I made sure that every one of our senior managers were out on a route at least every three months. And they had to deliver half the bottles, and they had to go to all the different parts of the country. So they had to be in the summer in Phoenix. They had to be Delightful. in the winter in <laughs> Pennsylvania. They had to they had to live what those route reps were doing on on a daily basis. Every one of the senior managers had to be in the call center. We were taking. We had um, when I got. Toward the end of when I was there, we had over 800,000 customers. We were taking 1,300 calls a day. They had to go in, answer calls with the customers, find out what the issues were, and really live what the frontline people were experiencing. And all of a sudden, the people said, wow, they really are paying attention to what we're doing. And across the board, the managers were much smarter about what needed to change from the policies we currently had in place. So, so you said I'm going <coughs> to. Towards... I didn't answer, by the way. Your if, oh, so let's stay with that question. Because I, I think so. That's how a do great you question. fire a thousand people and make it not be the most miserable experience for everybody involved? <laughs> well, first of all, I had to paint the picture of what was wrong with the organization. Nobody is going to be comfortable with that level of re, uh, staff reduction if there isn't a clear reason why you're doing it. And, and you describe in the book, you have 230 people in the finance division for a company with $230 million in sales. It's probably 10 times what you need yeah. to, well, to run that business. We. The way the company was grew, it was through acquisition, and there was never 
uh, a time when they integrated all of the companies it's into a one. It was a hodgepodge. So if if I wanted to buy another company, I would have to set up another SBU. So we had seven separate SBUs, strategic business units, doing the same thing seven different ways with seven separate chart of accounts and a consolidation finance group that put it into language that could go to McKesson Corporate. It was way, way overstaffed. So so you paint a picture and you basically get everybody, if not to buy in, at least to understand the company's going out of business and if we don't make major changes, everyone loses their job. So it makes that easier. How well, does it- but there was one other thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't do this myself. A, I had smart people around me, and we set up uh, across the board uh, task forces made up of the frontline people to come back with their own recommendations. That was really interesting in the book. Of what, where, what needed to change. Where, where some people said, hey, my own position is duplicated three places Correct. Some of us, that's amazing to get employees to say, you need to either fire me or fire people like me because there are too many of us Correct. for the amount of business we have. Correct. How, how, does, how do you do this uh, at a, as a coach? You, you describe the exit you had from the Lakers after, what is it, 10 years, 11 years, three championships? As a player, 10 years, yeah. So, so you said that was like a graceful how often are you fired and and you hug it out and leave (laughs) but basically everybody left on really good terms and as tearful as it was uh, what was the life lesson jerry west taught you uh when you left well you know the one thing you know jerry west the logo uh taught me is you don't burn bridges the logo Uh, logo. and and for people who aren't basketball fans anytime you see the nba logo that is jerry that West's is jerry profile. west and so his nickname uh the logo is the logo <laughs> we call him that very affectionately uh but it, it was it was crazy because he brought me into the lakers uh, he made a trade that was very unpopular at the time uh-huh uh and you know we ended up winning three more championships and then when, when I he was brought leaving, you in he pulls you aside and says hey everybody hates me for this trade right. And in three years, they're going to call this the greatest trade I've made. Yeah, exactly. How, how does that make you feel when you're nervous, you're a rookie, you're starting out? Well, the first thing it does, Barry, it puts a whole lot of pressure on you. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and it was great for me because I knew that at that particular time that he had a lot of faith in me. And I also knew that I wasn't going to let him down, you know, mm-hmm. because he stuck his neck out for me. So uh, it was a, and it still is an unbelievable relationship that I have with the logo. Uh, <laughs> but when he wanted to change uh, directions, you know, it was very tearful for both of us. And, and I knew he was doing it because it's a business decision. It had mm-hmm. nothing to do with being personal about it. And I also knew that, you know, because of the way he had treated me, I was going to leave on very good terms. You know, even though I wanted to still be a Laker for life, uh, I understood the business of basketball that sometimes these decisions have to be made. We have been speaking with Byron Scott of the L.A. Lakers and Charlie Norris of Fresh Pet and McKesson Water. If you enjoy this conversation, check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling. You can find that at Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. Read my daily column at BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC. 
Welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys for doing this. It's it's a privilege and it's I find this sort of stuff a lot of fun. I really enjoy doing this. I know I only have you for a short period of time. There was one question I did not get to, and this applies to both of you. You tell the story, Byron, early in the book about after the trade, the Lakers make it through the Western um, Conference Finals and you go back into the locker room and you're ready to celebrate right. and they're all business. Right. And the the team culture is we only celebrate winning uh, championships. You sell, Charlie, you sell McKesson for over a billion dollars when you had basically taken over a company that was a mess a few years earlier. At what point do you, after you achieve that level of success, do you stop and say, now what? I mean, is it anticlimactic how do you keep motivated after you do what you set out to do i remember reading about michael jordan having you know the whole gambling discussion was he needed something else after the third or fourth or fifth or sixth championship he needed something else to motivate him how do you keep motivated after you achieve your goals well, for me, you know, uh, winning is the, the ultimate motivation factor for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in that 84, when we got to the finals and I wanted to run in the locker room and celebrate, and Magic and all the guys kind of looked at me crazy. It's like, no, 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 we, we don't celebrate Western Conference champions. We celebrate NBA champions. And that year we lost to the Celtics, mm-hmm. you know, my rookie year. So the next year was much easier, obviously, to get revved up for because you just had a disappointing season. In in our eyes, you know, getting to the finals and losing was, you know, was uh, was a failure season for season for us. So the next year we win the championship, and I think after every time that we won a championship, I wanted to win another one. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's that's the. The mark of a, of, of a great champion is that you, you're just not living on your laurels. You're not thinking about what you just did in the past. You're worried about the next year and the next year and the next year. And it, it, the guys I played with, it wasn't very difficult to get up for that next year. You know, those guys were all driven just like I was. And we wanted to win. We wanted to win as many championships as possible. Ronnie Lott. Uh, who I know you know, mm-hmm. is a very good friend of mine. And when he was with the 49ers b- before they went on their championship runs, you know, we were talking one day and he, he asked me the same question, what keeps you guys going? And I said, we, we only got a short amount of time in this profession. You win as many as you can while you right. can. Take advantage of the situation. And I remember he did a Sports Illustrated story and, and, and told the guy the exact same thing that we had talked about. You know, so that was my motivation factor is that Nobody remembers, Barry, how many points I scored in my career, but every time my name comes up in a conversation, they'll say, how many championships did you win? Two, three, four? And they're always really close, you mm-hmm. know? But if I ask them three. how many? Three, three, exactly. Three as a player, two as a two. I as didn't a win as a coach. I went, I went, to, went the to the finals twice. twice. Yeah. But they always remember how many championships you won. Huh. Nobody remembers, unless you are really a basketball history geek, that – I scored over 15,000 points in my career, and I was on a team with three unbelievable Hall of Famers, really four, because Bob how, McAdoo was on that team about, as well. You started 82 consecutive games. Was it three seasons? Is that, is that right? I think three out of four seasons started that, 82 consecutive games. That's pretty unheard games. of today. Well, today, yeah, because guys rest all the time. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, going back, I'm, I'm Except old LeBron, who seems to be running Well, more you know what? LeBron is the only guy to me in the league that can say if I need a day off that nobody should ever question. Uh, he runs more minutes than any other Plays first more, player. He has more minutes per game than anybody. He's went to the final six straight years. I mean, Crazy. do you know how hard that is? So nobody should ever complain 
If LeBron James came out and said, uh, you know what, guys, I'm going to take the day off. There should not be one person in the world that says, oh, that, that's not right. He's the only guy to me right now in the NBA that can say I want a day off and there shouldn't be a question about could, it. Could he play back in your era? Do you think LeBron James could get in a time machine, go back to the 80s and be competitive in that time period? Absolutely. Not all, so I don't skills. know a lot of players that you could say that about. I today. don't either. You know, Kobe Bryant was one that mm-hmm. I thought was a old school, you know, type Shaq. guy. Shaq. Uh, LeBron James is de- definitely one of those guys that would still be uh, in Hall of Famer in the 80s because he has all the skills. He has the Magic Johnson skills of being able to see the floor, make players better that mm-hmm. are around him, and when need be, can take over a game. So LeBron, yes, absolutely. So we were talking about not spiking it in the end zone after you have a big success. What do you do after you sell a company for more than a billion dollars? You get yourself a nice payday. How do you not say, okay, uh, I'm uh, I'm the best. I don't need to do anything else. What <laughs> What's the next step for you, Charlie? <laughs> well, in my case, I was exhausted mm-hmm. uh, through that whole process of turning around McKesson Water. Sleepless and, nights? You uh, describe well, in detail. Of, uh, it was and, not easy. It's not easy, and... Uh, you know, we were talking about eliminating a thousand positions. That was a horrible thing. Uh, but better than sur- eliminating twenty five hundred. Right, but you still everyone has survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company had uh, certainly a uh, a culture of uh, embracing not. Uh, willy nilly firing people. They mm-hmm. they always found a new home. And uh, it was the whole, that whole experience was just a really difficult one uh, uh, on the heels of a a similar thing with Deer Park. And so I took a year where I uh, thought, what did I want to do next? And uh, my family decided uh, we we ended up having a... um, set up a donor-advised trust Mm -hmm. with the California Community Foundation because we wanted to become much more active in philanthropy. Uh, And uh, during that year, I started to, we each, we we did a a business plan for philanthropy and my wife and my two kids and I each had our own areas and we started to go out and and look at different organizations to see which ones we wanted to support. And in my case, I was involved with uh, children at risk and job creation, and we actually created a uh, prototype of a uh, operation that combined uh, life skills training with sport and at the end of that, if, if the kids did both the life skills training and uh, participated in the uh, the work the sport workouts, which were basketball. We gave them a hundred hours of a paid internship at a company, so they would start to get uh, a feeling about what it was like working. And they they all ended up having better grades. And Byron uh, is the poster child of this as well because he does tremendous work with. Uh, summer basketball camps, and again, is doing the same type of thing. So that was one area. 
and then I started to think about what I wanted to do next. And uh, th- with the help of a friend of mine, Rick Kane, who um, founded Kane Capital Advisors, uh, we started to buy businesses and I started to get on boards. And I, I was still very active in business, but not the day-to-day responsible person for you know, uh, running it. When you say people look at you two as so different because visually – you are we different, are. <laughs> but talk, you know I have the advantage of having spoken with you for forty-five minutes. It's pretty obvious why there's a friendship here and there's an overlap in interest because you guys really are cut from the same cloth, even though you're yeah. coming from completely different places. I only have you. Thank for, you for that. Well, yeah, appreciate it, it, it Barry. It, it, it's apparent just listening to you both talk with such enthusiasm about the things you're talking about, and it makes you realize how. People are superficial. Here's a white guy and a black guy. Oh, they must be completely different people. Right. Not yeah, really. But, you know, with, with what we've done, and and uh, Byron uh, is brilliant about taking a moment, taking a deep breath, and then saying, I'm going forward, I'm not going backward. And uh, literally one day after uh, his uh, coaching with the Lakers ended, he was already into what? Where am I going next? What? What am I going to do? And if if you're wired like that, uh, I will never not be doing something and trying to do it the best that I possibly can. And Byron is 120 percent like that. In the book, you reference getting to know the various people when you came into McKesson, and you reference knowing everybody who worked in the forum. Practically from the hot dog salespeople to the people who swept the floor at night. Right. What does this mean to running a business, running a company, to really know your staff, your suppliers, your competitors, your clients? How important is that? Well, I I think it's extremely important. Um, And like Charlie said, I try to treat everybody the way I want to be treated. Uh, So getting to know the security guards at the forum when we walk in and, and know their backgrounds and know their family members and know what type of uh, things they have in store and what they want to achieve in life is getting them to understand that you do really care about them. And, mm-hmm. and it's the same with your players. Uh, it's the same with my coaches, you know, so I make it a point uh, to get to know them on a personal level as well as a professional level. And you know what, to be honest with you, all these years that I had been doing that, I didn't know that that was a, a form of being a great leader. It was just something that came natural to me until I met Charlie and we started writing down some of the things that we thought would make a great leader. And when he started telling me, you know, we have to get to the heads and hearts of people and B, you do it naturally, then I started really thinking about it, you know. But it was something that just really came natural to me because I think it was something that was instilled to me at a very early age by my mom and my dad. Uh, You know, that old saying, like my mom used to say, you know, you treat people the way you want to be treated. And that's how I kind of took it. And so getting to know the, the guy at the hot dog stand, getting to know the guy uh, that's selling the T-shirts, getting to know the guy that's on the floor, that's one of the security guys in the, in the red jackets, getting to know Tony, our man, at the, at the security when we would come into the Lego facility to work out. You know, they, they appreciate that because now you make them feel they're important, and they are. And I thought that was very important in every job that I've been to, to get to know the other people or the people that – really make the company run in, in, in Charlie's case or make that arena really work are the people that people don't see on an everyday basis. Now, I'll take it one step further, and I think this applies to, to Byron's uh, world as well as mine. Um, with McKesson Water Products Company, 
we had 2,500 employees, and a very high percentage of them touched the end user every single day. And if you can't have those people feel comfortable telling you whether your programs are working or not working, uh, what needs to change, if they don't feel that you care about what they're saying, then you've lost it. You have no chance of being successful uh, running that business. And we got to the point where we stopped doing customer satisfaction surveys. All we did were employee satisfaction surveys because I knew if the employees were happy, if they felt that they were heard, the customer would would be happy with our product and service. Discipline basically brings different related ideas that you get to apply in a, in a different way. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example of one thing that we talked about that uh, because of timing, uh, B never got to incorporate. But we were, uh, we were uh, one day talking about, uh, it's in many ways potluck with the draft and, and mm-hmm. uh, what uh, uh, the drafted player, how well that person might fit in with the organization once they're there. And I said, have you ever considered psychological testing of the uh, prospective draftees before you actually go out and draft them? And he said, no, we've never done that. And so we started talking about how we use it when we're hiring in business. And and Byron thought, you know, this is something I really want to bring right. to what I'm doing. So that was that was an example where... Uh, uh, from my end to, to his, it was clearly an opportunity that hadn't been considered before. So so uh, what should the – this is true for all professional sports. There was a big um, Sports Illustrated article about 10 years ago about the number of football players who were – and this was before the whole – um, uh, concussion trauma issue became. Yeah, I mean, in in the in the NFL, you have the issue of uh, the average lifespan of an offensive lineman is some ridiculously uh, early uh, ten or twenty or, years below yeah, the average. Yeah, exactly. Big. I mean, so what should they? What should professional sports leagues be doing to? develop some financial literacy for, for their players. Well, I know, I know what the problems are with the collective bargaining agreements, and uh, I know what the agents are allowed to do and not allowed to do. But at some point, I think it would be really important for the league to and uh, for the unions to find a way to man- force players to uh, manage money better uh, perhaps there'd be a way to hold back a certain percentage, like having a 401k or sure. some other plan of that nature, and make it a forced res- uh, requirement to ensure that the players have money five years or seven years after retirement. It's easy enough to, to it, build something like that. Well, but on the other hand, you want to treat everybody as an adult, and it has to be done in a way that... Uh, everyone believes it's in their best interest, and I think that's that's the hardest thing and to, to get them to feel that they're not going to live forever and play 40 years in the right. NBA or in the NFL or whatever, that they have to do this to secure their future. Gentlemen, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for being so generous with your time. 
we have been speaking to the authors of Slam Dunk Success, Leading from Every Position on Life's Court, written by Byron Scott and Charlie Norris. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or Bloomberg.com or SoundCloud for our other 149 or so uh, of these conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank my head of research, Michael Batnick, my uh, producer booker, Taylor Riggs, my recording engineer, Medina Parwana. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You have been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC.